<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the club that you didn't want to join. With a voice of red disease and this jingle doesn't rhyme. NordPod, NordPod, NordPod. My name is Matthew Zachary. And welcome to NordPod, right here on the Offscript Media Network. Now, I've been advocating on behalf of cancer and rare disease patients for over 20 years. Why? Because I am one. NordPod is the official podcast of the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And a quick reminder before we get started, that if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps other listeners like you discover the show. Now, let's get started. Howdy, friends. Welcome back to NordPod, the voice of rare disease. This is Matthew Zachary, and we got a great show for you today. Dr. Adrian Hamill is an associate professor of pediatric hematology oncology and the research director of the hemangioma and vascular malformation program at Cincinnati Children's Hospital in, you guessed it, Cincinnati, Ohio. So believe it or not, her path to becoming a scientist started when she was eight years old when she read an article in, we're dating ourselves, Reader's Digest about retinoblastoma, which is a cancer with genetic cause. She then decided at eight years old that she wanted to cure cancer, which is phenomenal. So she went on to Wellesley College to get a BA in biological chemistry and a PhD soon after. We talk about a lot of cool things in our conversation, including the difference between pediatrics, young adults, adult care, and how involving the patients in the experience themselves, because they're kind of already there, matters. She specializes in something called hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, Lots of syllables, but the acronym is cool, HHT. It's a genetic blood vessel disorder, often under-recognized and misdiagnosed. It's very treatable if promptly diagnosed, and there's a wide range of both diagnosis and treatment options for patients affected by the condition itself. We also talk about some of the pains and burdens of what it's like to be a doctor in the 21st century, and how much progress we've actually made in medicine and genetics over the last 50 years. So without further ado, Here's Dr. Adrian Hamill. Enjoy the show. Dr. Adrian Hamill, welcome to NordPod. Thank you for having me. We were just talking before the show that um, having the name Adrian is a potential blessing and a curse, depending on how much of a fandom in Stallone movies you have. Uh, yes, it is. Ever since I was little, there's a lot of Yo Adrian going on. But you don't get the Philly accent in Ohio, do you? No, not much. Not much. <laughs> At least not well. <laughs> <laughs> you could do your best in Ohio to get your Philly accent. I totally hear you there. I was doing all of my my uh, stalking, or they say diligence, perhaps, in, in checking out your, your backstory. You are a native Ohioan. I was not born here, but I have been here since I was two. 
Okay, that's like me saying I'm a native Brooklander when I lived there until I was two, and then I went to Staten Island for the rest of my life. Yeah. Not really from Brooklyn. I was raised on... Yeah, I get it. So, okay. I think that counts. I'm going to go with that. I'm going to give you that. I grew up here, I have to admit it. And my parents were from here initially. So I think um, I had that influence, even though I like to point out that I was born in Massachusetts. Right. And then, but you spent time in Texas, which probably culture shock. We'll get, we'll get to that later on, because I love when people go to almost antithetical locations and like figure out like, oh, things are different. This is awesome. So let's get into your origin story. You know, I, the question is always, did you want to be a doctor? But where did that happen for you? I actually did not want to be a doctor. I am a painfully shy person. Still am, but have figured out ways around it now at this point, I guess. I did want to be a researcher and a scientist. And I was very interested in multiple different sciences. You know, when I was seven, I was going to be an astronomer like Maria Mitchell. And by the time I was eight, I read an article about, it was just in a Reader's Digest, so it was a little tiny paragraph about figuring out the genetic basis of a cancer, of retinoblastoma. And I was so impressed and amazed that at that point, I decided that cancer was what I was going to do with my life. I was going to cure cancer. So for any listeners under 30, Reader's Digest. (laughs) (laughs) It was a monthly periodical that came in the shape of TV Guide, which is another thing you'll have to Google if you're under 30. And it was like the thing everyone read. Everyone read Reader's Digest in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Yeah, my grandparents had it. So whenever we went to visit Florida, I read it cover to cover. I actually think for a year or two, they might have given me my own subscription because I, I read it cover to cover, even though when I was little, some of it was over my head. So I can't help but go back to the fact that you said you were eight and read a journal about retinoblastoma. That that doesn't sound like a sentence that should be a thing, but it sounds like something that helped you become who you are. Yeah, I, I just thought cancer was the biggest, scariest thing I knew about when I was little. And it was the worst disease I could think of. And to figure out why it happened seemed so amazing to me, because if you could understand why, you should be able to fix it at some point. Um, And so that really changed my whole approach. And I, again, I thought I would go to the lab and figure out cancer in general long before I realized there were so many different cancers and so many different stories. But that was my goal. So where did you get your training? First, I went to college where I thought I could have a lot of research experience. I chose Wellesley. Um, Back to Massachusetts. Yes, I, I intentionally went what I thought was home. Um, And uh, I was able to work in a biochemistry lab where I was, you know, creating a protein that we were expressing in bacteria. And and I really thought that I was going to get my PhD and do all this basic science. But I realized in that project that the only time that I really cared or the only way to really motivate myself to grow big vats of bacteria was to think about the human disease that was related to it. And so that's when I realized that maybe getting a PhD alone wasn't going to be enough for what I wanted to do. And when I switched over to the MD-PhD idea where I could apply what I was learning to human disease. That may be the first time on NordPod someone has said a big vat of bacteria. 
Uh, they were big vats. Big vats of bacteria could be the name of the show. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're now at Cincinnati Children's in Cincinnati. And I've had the privilege of going there several times in my career while I was working at the nonprofit. I started Stupid Cancer. And we have a dear friend in common, Dr. John Parentesis. You've been there a long time. What, what types of evolutions have you really seen in the treatments that the hospital has been giving? Oh, wow. So... Um, when I, I came for my residency in 2004 and stayed for my hemonc fellowship, hematology oncology fellowship in 2007 to 10 and joined the faculty uh, shortly after or directly after that. And it's, it's really changing quickly. So obviously um, genetics, the reason that I was so interested in oncology initially has really become so much more useful and mainstream in oncology where mutations have been identified and are now being targeted by specific medications. So a lot of cancer therapy, and my disclaimer here is I'm no longer in the oncology division, but a lot of cancer therapy, it's no longer just these big guns that, that, that kill everything. Um, the big, strong chemo that everybody thinks about. But there are a lot of more targeted therapies that are, they can be oral medications. They're very specific to some of the changes that happen in certain cancers. Yeah, I want to speak to something I'm very proud of about Cincinnati Children's, which is in regard to a lot of the work that they did with, in the early days of young adult cancer, long-term pediatric cancer. And that's kind of where we started our, 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 our partnership with Cincinnati Children's in that I remember going for our first visit and John was hosting us. We met the entire staff uh, in the division and there was a like specific young adult cancer like waiting room and a specific young adult cancer walk through the center where you wouldn't interact with like six-year-olds and 80-year-olds and they really wanted to keep the cohort group you know, aligned with who other faces you see like yours. And that was unprecedented at the time to do that, to kind of like segment out intentionally by age for the purpose of like mental health and well-being. I'm just so proud of that story because it's it's an emblematic of what needs to happen when you actually involve the patients in any decision making around their care. Absolutely. And that was, you know, a big change overall because initially and still some places pediatrics only goes up to 18 or 21 but we realized several years ago many years ago now that a lot of young adult cancers are still pediatric or they're better treated on pediatric protocols they're more like the the younger kid cancers and they don't respond as well to the adult version of treatment and so bringing those patients in up to age 31, at least, was a big change. And then they realized that, yeah, some of those young adults who were parents didn't want to see the two-year-olds pulling their IVs, that it was very stressful to them when they had their own kids at home and they felt like maybe they were in the wrong place. Um, and so really kind of making sure that they had a place um, once we realized that they, they should have the treatment that our center could offer as opposed to an adult center. 
Right, and, and just for the sake of the listeners, this is this was was a really big deal. It's still a really big deal, and it just speaks to how you know we say cure, but there's more than just medicine for the cure. And your well being and your experience going through this harrowing process can be made a little less terrible by these simple decisions uh, at the hospital. Adrian, one one more thing, we got a tour of the hospital, and John, Doctor Partisis showed us the proton accelerators. Oh, yes. And there were three of them, and I've never seen even like one of them. Is Oh, that was just for training. <laughs> the other two were like, but again, this idea that we've made so much progress from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and it, it, it's difficult to say we take it for granted today because it's still terrible, but it's, is it fair to say it's less terrible? Uh, I'd like to think so. I mean, one of the things that you've already mentioned that Cincinnati does really well and is one of the reasons that I came here for training was that they have always, as long as I've been there, tried to include families and parents. And so actually, when I first interviewed for my residency, I was actually floored at the idea that you would invite the parents to be part of rounds because I couldn't imagine how you could say the things you were used to saying on rounds in front of them uh, with the changing the words or changing how you say it, all sorts of things. And so I went on a kind of a practice rounds to see how this would even happen. And uh, it was amazing. And actually, Cincinnati Children's was the first to introduce that. And now it's kind of the way it should be. Uh, most centers have now adopted that family centered rounds. Right. And, and those words were just like fridge magnet bingo back then, putting this patient at the center, putting the family. But it, when it happens and it works, it's it's evidence. I want to talk before the break about the idea of guidelines, because we're going to get into this with the HHT conversations. I worked a lot with the National Comprehensive Cancer Network for many, many years, and a team of us helped them build the AYA guidelines in 2008, 9, 10, whatever that was. And how do you feel about guidelines in that they're not really mandatory? You can't make sure that they're followed, but do actions like putting the parents in the grand rounds help center and focus why at least guidelines are important in the first place? I think guidelines are incredibly important for a number of reasons. One is that it tells physicians who are less familiar or less expert in in an area, how they should proceed for these patients. It tells families what they should ask for and expect. And it tells insurance what they should be covering, because that is always an issue for us. Yeah. And insurance covering things, kind of a big deal. <laughs> Very big deal. All right. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Dr. Adrian Hamill. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, welcome back. Let's talk about... I'm not going to pronounce this correctly. I'll let you do the honors. We're a big fan of when syllables matter, and in this case, they really do. Hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia. Thank you. I was wondering going to try it. How long did it take you to say that the right way? My goodness. Takes a little bit of practice, especially to say it fast, but that's why we usually say HHT. HHT. Yeah. And again, like, like um, acronyms can come in very handy as well, of course. Yes. A lot of syllables. A lot of syllables. So this is a congenital blood vessel disorder? Yes. Uh, usually runs in families. So that's the hereditary. The hemorrhagic, um, they can have bleeding, most often nosebleeds and GI um, gastrointestinal bleeds. And the telangiectasia are these small red spots that are abnormal blood vessels visible in the skin. But those are the cause of the abnormal bleeding in the nose or the GI tract as well. So this is passed down from parents regardless, doesn't skip generations. You either get it or you get it. It's a flip of a coin. Every child has a one in two chance. Yeah, one in two chance of inheriting it from an affected parent. So it's a 50% risk for every every child. And in some families, that's six people, yes. And in other families, it's six people, no, because every flip of the coin is independent. Yeah, I remember being taught Punnett squares in AP Bio in <laughs> high school. <laughs> like, oh, really? That would be the odds. Well, this is a dominant condition. So it's it's not even as uncommon. You're not getting carriers. You have different levels of, of being affected. Some people, they carry it, but they don't have as severe nosebleeds, or they may not have some of the larger, more dangerous internal AVMs, arteriovenous malformations that are, that are really potentially life-threatening. But if you have it, if you have the gene, you have the propensity to have the abnormal blood vessels. So what's the incidence rate? So we think it's one in 5,000 to one in 10,000, but it's very underdiagnosed at this point. Based on kind of uh, genetic studies, we see that these genes are being affected more often than the number of patients that we have out there who are diagnosed. So based on the, the frequencies, we think that it's, it's very underdiagnosed at this point. Is that just because it is only one in 5,000? Maybe. It's also because, you know, the things that when these things run in families, if if everybody has red freckles or everybody has nosebleeds, you don't realize that it's actually a medical condition that, that needs additional attention until or unless someone in your family has 
a major event like a brain bleed. And then everybody realizes you know, that person gets diagnosed and everybody else realizes they're at risk. So does this show up like in utero at birth? Do they do amnio? It just kind of happens one day? The diagnosis? Yeah. Um, you, can, you can do it from amnio or from um, chorionic villus sampling. We can do it right at birth from cord blood. It's even possible to do um, in vitro fertilization and embryo selection. Um, by testing the embryos to make sure that you choose one who is not affected potentially. And again, this is just, I'm asking like armchair questions. My wife and I, oh, you wouldn't know this. I'm like, you know, my wife and I have twins, uh, IVF twins, and they did all these blood tests on us before we started our cycle to make sure that we didn't have stuff in us so they could, if they did, they'd root out this, you know, the, the Tay-Sachs and all the fabulous stuff that comes with, you know, certain parts coming from Europe. Is this a thing that is part of a guideline that definitely happens or it's just not something that insurance covers and it's, it's goes under the radar. No, this one is, is difficult because it's certainly not being routinely tested for unless there's a family history of that already. Insurance coverage is quite poor for this. And it's because people do grow up with this. So we say that if people who have HHT come to an HHT center of excellence, there are currently 27 in North America. So not everywhere, but they're, they're around. If they go to a center of excellence, if they have the appropriate screening, if they get treatment for anything that's found, we expect that they can have a normal lifespan. But there are a lot of people walking around with it who don't know that they have it and aren't being screened and continue to run the risk of having um, an untoward sudden event. Is this kind of like being on, I'm making this up, like beta blockers where your blood is just so thin, if you get injured, you'll bleed to death or something similar? So it's not, it, it, it's considered a bleeding disorder because they bleed, but it's not a bleeding disorder because it's a clotting problem like hemophilia or von Willebrand's. It's actually because the vessels, the blood vessels themselves are fragile and formed inappropriately. And so it's not that, you know, even if they get a cut or have a regular surgery that they'll bleed, it's more that the, where the abnormal blood vessels have formed, most commonly liver, lung, and brain, if those break, they can be a big deal. Obviously, bleeding in the brain is a hemorrhagic stroke. And so that can be life-threatening, even lead to death. I'm just reading here in the notes that I was provided that the average diagnosis is at 27 years old. Is that true? Yeah, I think I believe that that note that you see. But, um, you know, again, we it can be anywhere from in utero for us to I had a 93-year-old in clinic recently. So if, if someone is 93, they've been living their whole life with this, does that mean it's, it's okay? Like, where can it get really bad that you identify, I should really see a doctor if you don't know what you have inside your DNA? So like I mentioned, uh, you know, the thing that usually brings families to attention is when somebody has a complication of an AVM. So for a brain AVM, that can be a hemorrhagic stroke. Most commonly, they're usually asymptomatic until there's a rupture, and then that's a big deal. Lung AVMs, they can rupture, although that's most often associated with pregnancy. Lung AVMs, the bigger, more common risk is that they, they create um, a way for 
things to get through the lungs that would otherwise be filtered out by the, the capillary network, the tiny blood vessels in the lungs. So for instance, a clot in your leg that would normally go to your lungs, which is scary enough, a pulmonary embolus, could actually get through the pulmonary AVM and be a thrombotic stroke to your brain. Or when you get dental work, we know that there is bacteria released into the bloodstream and normally that will end up in the lungs, get a nice oxygenated atmosphere and be killed. But if you have uh, an abnormal connection, that bacteria can actually get to protected places and cause brain abscess. So some people present after a dental, a couple of weeks or a month after a dental appointment with a massive brain infection. And so there are a lot of ways that these can kind of show up sneaky. But again, there are people who live to 93 and do fine. The biggest, most common complaint is that these patients bleed. So they can actually bleed enough from, again, nosebleeds or GI bleeds that they are severely anemic. That's, you know, causing stress on their heart. That's impinging on their quality of life. They have no energy. It's hard to do their job. It's hard to, to live your life when you are severely anemic. And actually over 50% of adults with HHT are anemic and need a lot of iron support or even blood transfusions to continue on. What is that life like for someone that has this condition? So right now, most of our care is supportive through iron infusions, through blood transfusions, through trying to control the bleeding with um, various approaches by, by ENT doctors who are closing off some of those abnormal blood vessels or doing surgeries to try to close those. But we're trying to move toward, like we are with cancer, we're trying to move toward real therapies that will affect the, the blood vessels themselves. Right. Good old genetics. Right. So we are starting to use some fairly targeted agents, borrowing those from cancer in most cases. Things like Avastin or Bevacizumab um, has been used for HHT for people who have really severe bleeding to the point where it's difficult to keep up with their transfusion or infusion needs. Or people who have pulmonary hypertension, they have stress from on their heart from all of the um, high circulation or high output heart failure from liver AVMs. So they're being treated with Avastin, or now there are ongoing clinical trials for other agents, pazopinib, um, some of the thalidomides, that are getting to be a little bit more targeted. But so far, we haven't gotten to the point where we can just give back what went wrong. That is, of course, the goal, that we could actually cure HHT. Right now, we're trying to be better at managing HHT and improving life in HHT, but ultimately, the goal is cure. I'm old enough to remember when thalidomide was bad. You know, it has um, because <laughs> it, it changes how blood vessels are. You know, it's, it's bad if you're trying to form them as an embryo. It may be good if you have some abnormal blood vessels that are bleeding all the time, but obviously can't be used in pregnant people. So it's not a great choice in childbearing age women. So there are a lot of things that we're trying and uh, doing as current research studies and clinical trials. Well, we're living in like an everything old is new again as well. We can do a whole show on psychedelics and where the evidence is showing that helping many different conditions, maybe not this per se, 
Absolutely. So we're going to be talking to one of your patients on the next episode of NordPod, Phil Bright. Would you like to give us a preview of your experience with him? Well, he's a lovely young man that I met already as a young man in my HHT clinic. And he actually has goals of becoming a physician himself. I think he's thinking of more of an interventional type, maybe surgeon, but uh, I guess medical school will will figure that out for him. He worked with us in the summer um, on some retrospective research information that we had that we were going through. And we had a really nice time uh, learning from him and teaching him about other folks with HHT. He, he obviously knows his family's history, but there are different genes that cause HHT that have slightly different profiles. And even between families with the same genetic changes and even within families, there are a lot of differences between people and how they're affected. The human body is a giant mess, but it's a magic <laughs> mess, isn't it? It is. Amazing. I got to and messy. S- I, it only <laughs> just got to, don't look on the insides, right? I have many friends that went to med school, and every now and then they would just allow me to walk into the anatomy class because I had no idea what I was in store for. And I would like audit anatomy and like, who is this guy? Like, I can't imagine what it's like to go through this process and spend all those years in medical school, but to have just this complete sense of awe about how it actually all works and that we can go into the DNA of people and manipulate things in the best sense of that term and either turn things off or prevent things or, like you said, take medicines that already exist and repurpose them in a way that it's – I'm looking at progress. Are you happy? I'm thrilled with where you come from. Oh, I think it's amazing. I think – you know, what happened over the last decade in oncology, where genetics has become the mainstream, and it has been a significant part of HHT for a long time. I think in other vascular anomalies and other other rare diseases, getting the genetics to the forefront so that we can know what has gone wrong and how to target it to fix it is really important. And right now, that is a giant insurance fight. <laughs> yeah. That, again, another podcast for another time, the insurance fights. My goodness. Yeah. Okay. Softball question to wrap up the show. Skyline Chili, worth it? You know, I'm not a huge fan. I, I shouldn't say that as a Cincinnatian now, but my family loves it and they have really good other things, buffalo wraps and Greek salads. So I don't mind going there. Yeah. It's just like my indulgence. Whenever I come out to Ohio, I have to go to Skyline. Yeah, my family loves it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Skyline, not a sponsor of the show, but still, if you <laughs> check out Skyline Chili if you're in Cincinnati. All right. Dr. Adrian Hamill is an associate professor of pediatric hematology oncology and the research director of the, I'm going to get this right, Hemangioma and Vascular Malformation Program at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Did I get that right? That's right. My goodness. Thank you so much for coming on NordProd. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us your rare disease story in your own voice by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66. 
and we might just use it in a future show. NordPod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Offscript Health. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary, Leslie Nordstrom, and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Valerie Mocken and Noah Jones. NordPod is recorded by Matthew Zachary and mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. Our theme music is by the Salvatones. Learn more about the music of the Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. Or visit us on the web at offscript.com. For more information about Nord, visit nordpod.org.